0: The reading today is a short one, but it packs a punch. Many of you, I'm sure, already know it and could recite it with me. From the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses one and two, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In, in their pursuit of right relationship with God, atonement is our word for that. The, the sacrifices of God's people in the Old Testament were accompanied By the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen as their livestock were slaughtered and presented bloody upon the altar. And now we know today that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is over. But were you aware that there is still a New Testament sacrificial system? One of the benefits enjoyed by Israel was that God was not only making them aware of who He is, but also gave clear instruction on how to approach Him. Which sacrifices were acceptable and pleasing to Him, and and what things would be an abomination to Him. And, And we have the same benefit in the New Testament, where God does not command us to bring in our livestock, but to give ourselves. To put ourselves alive on the altar, set apart and consecrated to God. This is what is acceptable to him. This is what delights him. This is what pleases him. This is the appropriate response to him and for him. Our, Our two verses today constitute an incredibly important transition in Romans. One that moves from doctrine and theology, the gospel to a practical outworking of the gospel in the remainder of the letter. And this is Paul's usual method. Along with most of the New Testament authors, Paul begins with laying out the gospel of grace alone, whereby all people are wholly reliant on the mercy of God, and then following up with exhortations or commandments to live in the reality of that gospel truth. Nearly every New Testament letter is like this. It begins with three quarters, two thirds of of theology, doctrine, the gospel. And then what are the implications of that gospel worked out in our lives? And so commands are exceedingly rare in the first 11 chapters of Romans. The emphasis is on doctrine and theology, but Paul would insist that all are practical. All of what he teaches has eminent practical significance. For if we take to heart the truth of the gospel that he has presented, we will have a transformed worldview that cannot but affect our lives in uncounted ways. And so the long list of commands and exhortations which are going to follow in the remainder of this letter all flow out of what has been described in chapters 1 to 11. One commentator labels this final section the ethical outworking of the gospel. We might say that this part of the letter is what Paul has been building towards all along. He has made it clear that the gospel, uh, any gospel that has no implications for our daily lives is, is no gospel at all. The gospel, the true gospel, will bring us to obedience. Our passage this morning is and should be one of the most famous in the Bible because all of what Paul writes in Romans is hinged here and all of it could be seen as an extended application of Romans 12, 1-2. It points us back to everything that has been written, especially in Romans 9-11 to and then gives us the formula for how that theology, that gospel, is to shape the way that we live. And so it begins, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These exhortations we need to see do not merely contain good advice or the apostles' preference, but the, represent the authoritative will of God and are enjoined upon churches in a solemn manner. Paul is not the source of these commands, but is simply the instrument through whom the mercy of God is itself exhorting us. Total sacrifice of our total lives is no more and no less than the appropriate and expected response to God's mercy as we have experienced it. This appeal also means that God's mercy summons us not to passivity but to exertion, albeit an exertion rooted in faith and energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is clear from the very command that God's mercy does not automatically produce the obedience God expects, but that God's mercy is manifested in His Spirit's work of inward renewal which compels us towards the obedience that the gospel demands. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which is to say that the commands and exhortations to follow in the remainder of the letter are built firmly on the basis of the theology in chapters 1 to 11, and especially, specifically, the mercies of God, which dominated the last section in Romans 9 to 11. All of what Paul has written so far is summed up under the heading of the mercy of God in action. Paul's final statement about that gospel, Romans 11.32, is that God has consigned all to disobedience so that mercy would be the determining factor in human salvation. Now his appeal is made in view of that mercy encapsulated in the gospel. So he ends by saying everyone has failed. None has sought for God. No one has appropriately responded in faith. None has taken God's genuine invitation to come to him and receive salvation. And so now it all depends on the mercy of God who saves. And now he calls us to obedience throughout the remainder of the book by that mercy of God. So why does Paul wait until now to begin discussing Christian living that's, that's what he should be focusing on, right? Obeying the commands of Christ to go and make disciples, Matthew 28 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why the long theology lesson? Shouldn't we just skip right to, to the lists of do's and don'ts? Shouldn't the message of the church just focus on victorious Christian living and godly behavior? Theology confuses and doctrine divides, right? If we start with a list of instructions, church, we will tend to start trying to accomplish these things without the gospel motivation required in order to genuinely fulfill them out of a love towards God. In fact, we are all doing theology all the time. If we don't get good theology, we will automatically fill it in with all of our bad theology. And so if we begin with a list of do's and don'ts, I will automatically fill in the reasons why that is. I did this as a child. I grew up in a church that focused on the do's and don'ts. And even if they never explicitly said it, there was automatically things that came to my mind of why are we doing these things. Well, of course, it's to, to please God and gain his favor. Why I don't do these things? Well, God will be mad at me if I, if I do these wrong things. We, we automatically fill in for ourselves. Secondly, I can tell you, be humble, be generous, be selfless. But any of these true deep heart issues, to give you the instruction is worthless unless we can begin to understand what God has done as a free gift. The mercy that he has shown to undeserving sinners like you and me. The people of God that he has formed from among those who had no right by birth or by merit to be called his children. If we just ignore one or three quarters of what Paul has to say in Romans and just get to the commands, we become like the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 4, who tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but do nothing to help them carry them out. And if this is how we teach our children, we do the very same thing. If we ignore the pattern set to us in the Bible of teaching the gospel and the predominance, the preponderance of, of the teaching being the gospel, the doctrine, the theology that works out then in obedience, we will create little Pharisees who know the do's and don'ts but do not have the ability to walk them out. Without This gospel, the listeners by default try to produce by other means the obedience which can only be genuine as a faith response to Paul's gospel. We try to produce fruit through the carrot or the stick method, enticing with benefits on the one hand and threatening with the other. The law came with its carrot, you shall live, you shall be blessed in the land if you obey. It also came with its stick Cursed shall you be, death and destruction for disobedience. But Paul has taught us, along with the entire New Testament, that under that system, we could only expect the stick. Covenant curses for our disobedience. So throughout Romans, Paul has insisted that it is genuine faith, faith in this gospel, which will bring about obedience. And that without that faith, true obedience is impossible. No, the commands of Scripture, even the commands of Christ that we are to teach and observe, will not be fulfilled by mere human effort. We will not genuinely obey from a motivation of love for God unless the gospel has transformed and motivated us. The theology of God's grace and mercy, telling what God has done for sinful humans, must underlie the imperatives outlining one's duties and obligations to God. Carrying out the obedience of faith would be an impossibility without the theology that comes before it. So I know some of you, it's a great struggle to have 11 chapters of theology laid out over the last half a year. But we need to remember that this is imminently practical. Practical. All of what Paul teaches now has to flow out of that. If we, dis, if we separate these in our minds and now look at the to-dos and we're like, oh, finally, a breath of fresh air. Now Josh is finally telling us what to do. And, and don't connect it to the theology that motivates us to want to do that and empower us to do that. We will fail utterly. The theology must underline the commands. So what does this obedience entail? the sum of oneself, not in part, but the whole. The appeal by God's mercy is that you should, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let's, Let's break that down. The term to offer or present your bodies has already been used several times in chapter 6, verse 13, 16, and 19, when urging his audience not to offer the various parts of their bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather to offer them as instruments of righteousness to God. In chapter 6, Paul exhorted us to present our members for service to God. That is, each individual part of us must be presented to God. Here, our bodies refers to the whole person and stresses that consecration to God must involve the whole self. That genuine commitment to God embraces every area of life and includes the body in all of its particularity and concreteness. The sacrifice we offer is not some specific form of praise or service, but our bodies themselves. It is not only what we can give that God demands, he demands the giver. Living, then, is an appropriate description of those, John 5.24, who hear and believe the word of God. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Paul writes, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it is the living who can offer themselves as a sacrifice. Those who are living now by the work of the Spirit. But Paul also is, is likely specifying that this is a living sacrifice because he does not have martyrdom in mind here. It is not that we should find a way to die so that we can be a sacrifice, but rather the way we live, living lives that are holy and acceptable to God. Now, Each, each of these descriptors is a common one for sacrifices. That the offering of ourselves must be holy, involves it being set apart from what is common or profane, and being dedicated wholly to the service of the Lord. To be holy is part of what makes an offering pleasing and acceptable to God. Later Paul will say Romans 15:16, that his ministry of the gospel is for the purpose of making the offering of the Gentiles, that is most of us here acceptable. Sanctified, that is, made holy by the Holy Spirit. So this is Paul's goal all along. That he would make our sacrifice, the sacrifice, our living sacrifice, a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. This last descriptor, acceptable, is a stark reminder of Israel's perennial folly. Assuming that God is lucky to take whatever worship he can get and however they choose to give it. If there are acceptable sacrifices, we are to understand that this means that there are some that are unacceptable. Perhaps one of the most shocking passages is God's message to Israel through the prophet prophet Amos, chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Worship assemblies, collected offerings, and praise music are not necessarily pleasing to God. We could do everything that we have done here today in our gathering, and if we have not offered our whole selves wholly to God, then our efforts are not only in vain, they are an affront and an offense to God. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire. How we come to God matters, church. A half-hearted, half-committed, come-just-as-you-are approach will never please God. He tells us what is acceptable worship. He tells us what is pleasing and he tells us what is displeasing. And we fool ourselves if we think that God is just happy with whatever portion of my life I'd like to give today. Finally, in verse 1, presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, is your spiritual worship. Now, it, it's important for understanding to know that worship here isn't a style of music or a type of gathering but it is a word used for carrying out priestly duties. This is the work of the priests. Every Christian is a priest, and every Christian has the privilege of offering sacrifices to God. And we are commanded that our sacrifices are to be the right ones, the the ones out of reverence, the acceptable offering of our own bodies as living sacrifices to God. There are priests in the Old Testament who sometimes decided what it was that they were going to offer. They did not take into consideration God's commandments of what their offering was to be, and it did not go very well for them. The Christian is called to a worship that is not confined to one place or to one time, but involves all places and all times. Christian worship does not consist of what is practiced at sacred sites, at sacred times, and with sacred acts it is the offering of our bodily existence in this otherwise common or profane world. The descriptive, sorry, descriptive term for this worship is that it is spiritual in our ESV translation or reasonable in others. It's a rare Greek term which should be understood as having both of these connotations the only holy and acceptable sacrifice before God is described essentially as true and proper worship or appropriate priestly service. Paul is not merely saying that the sacrifices are, are supernatural, spiritual in nature. He's, he's not saying, because we're offering our bodies, right? That's, that's something tangible, that's something physical. Offering our bodies is the spiritual worship because the point is that it, it is eminently reasonable given the mercies of God for believers to dedicate themselves wholly to him. Yielding ourselves, heart and soul, to God is the only reasonable response since God has been so merciful. And failure to dedicate our lives to him then is the height of folly and irrationality. It is the true and proper worship or the appropriate service that we are called to. Those who worship in spirit and in truth have all their highest powers engaged in the homage they bring to their creator. Their worship is intelligent, understanding worship. That is, worship which is consistent with the truth of the gospel that we have been learning. It is nothing less than the offering of one's whole self in all of the life, inward thoughts, feelings and aspirations, uh, words and deeds, you name it, every part of us must be dedicated in whole worship to a holy God. The command here echoes the command of Christ, Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, Paul is not simply making a suggestion here, church, that believers can treat as an option, This is not the command that's reserved for missionaries and pastors or or super-Christians. This is not the level-up Christianity. This is not step two. This is the only reasonable response to God's mercy. And this is not a commandment that can be obeyed by enticement with prophets or blessings. This is not a commandment that can be obeyed if we put the fear of hell and fire into you only the gospel can finally propel us into this action of true worship. Only understanding the mercies of God in all of their finality, all all of their their superseding all other things. It is the gospel of Romans chapter 9 to 11 that make these things possible. Verse 2 then tells us how we can come to offer such genuine worship. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The mind is a necessary implement to offering the body. We can present our bodies to the Lord as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifices only if we do not conform to this world but are transformed by the renewing of the mind. This world can refer to the world in a sense of a place, but Paul typically uses it with a temporal nuance, referring to this age as the period of time in world history characterized by the domination of sin and of Satan. This world, or this age, is the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which all people, included in Adam's fall, that we all naturally belong to this world. And it is out of this world that we are being delivered, Galatians 1.4. It is to deliver us from this present evil age that Christ gave himself up for our sins. And those who belong to Christ have been transferred from the old realm of sin and death into the new realm of righteousness and life. But this transfer, while it is decisive and final, it is true, it does not keep us from being influenced by the old realm. In fact, we are very prone to being influenced by the old realm, the world we once walked in. And if we are not taking steps to protect ourselves, we will be shaped by this world. It will naturally shape our thinking. It will shape our lives. It will shape our ministries. It will shape our marriages. It will shape work, school, politics, recreation, everything else in life. We can devote ourselves to scripture and to learning so that our minds are constantly being renewed. But if we fail to cut off the world's influence in our lives, we will never reach maturity in Christ. It's like pouring clean water and dirty water into the same cup. You can't expect to get clean just by pouring clean water. You have to stop pouring the dirty water in. Watching contemporary culture and its customs is a very dangerous way for the Christian to educate his or her own conscience, because something that may be very acceptable the standard of life in this society may be radically alien to the kingdom of God. And so we are to have a completely different uh, morality, completely different ethics, a completely different pattern to society in the church than this world, and, and it. It doesn't take much investigation to see the ways in which the pattern of this world has influenced the church all through church history. So we, we need to be not only aware that this could happen, but aware that it is happening and needs to be rooted out of our lives. What things have we given over to the world to tell us what is right and wrong? In what ways is the world setting the pattern for our existence rather than the word of God? It's happening here and now, I promise you. And so we must ask ourselves, are we conforming? This isn't about outward presentation and public display. This instead gets to the very core of who we are. Do we have different motives, different values than those around us? Are we driven, church, by very different motivations, different ambitions than our unbelieving neighbors? What do you want out of life? Is that the same as the unbelievers that you live around? What is your bucket list? Is the only obvious difference between ourselves and unbelievers in cameras merely what we do on Sunday mornings? Does our calendar, our bank, and credit card statements reveal the very same pattern which clearly demonstrates that we have the exact same priorities as those who live around us? This may be the result of trying to have our minds transformed without resisting the natural assimilation that will result from taking in everything the world has to show us. Paul sets out here an either-or proposition. We are either being conformed to this world or having our minds renewed. We cannot do both. This world will shape us if we allow it. John Chrysostom wrote thousands of years ago, How is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. The sacrifice of our lives church, is the the daily multitude of choices in what to watch, what to do, what to say, and how to spend. It is in the meditations of our mind throughout the day, the aspirations of our heart at night. Is it for God and for his glory? This is a life of sacrifice. Is it for self-comfort and selfish ambition? We are being conformed. Those who are known by God, Romans 8, 29, have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son and therefore cannot be conformed to this world. These are diametrically opposed. Instead, positively, you are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the Greek grammar here is helpful, so I have to tell you about it. Because I always want to, right? But I know that you don't always want to hear about it. But today I have to tell you about Greek grammar because it's exciting. It's, It's helpful because the passive imperative, be transformed, suggests both that the transformation is affected by God, it's something passively happening to us, and that believers must cooperate in order that it take place. It's a passive imperative. Let this happen to you. And while this transformation is not the Christian's own doing, but the work of the Holy Spirit, we nevertheless have a real responsibility in the matter to let ourselves be transformed, to respond to the leading and pressure of God's Spirit. Both of these commands, the positive and the negative, have the sense of outside forces, which we allow or disallow as a continuing and ongoing decision of our will. So neither of these things is a once and for all decision. Both of them are a continuing action of passivity. (laughs) So this is to say, maybe the best way to say this is stop allowing yourselves to be conformed. Continue to let yourselves be transformed. It gives the credit to God as the one who does the work, but also the responsibility to us as those who must agree. Sanctification, or growing in obedience, is the work of God through faith for which he gets all the glory because he is the author and bestower of faith. And yet it is synergistic and we are commanded to resist evil and draw near to God. To resist conforming to the world and to allow God's spirit to transform us. Colossians 1.29 is my favorite passage in the Bible for explaining this. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For the body to be a holy sacrifice and to resist conformity to the world, the mind must be transformed for for Paul this is, mind is the practical reasoning or moral consciousness and so rather than to have our conscience formed by this world's value system Christians must adjust their way of thinking about everything in accordance with the word of God and with the newness of their life in the spirit this reprogramming of the mind does not take place overnight. It's, it's a lifelong process by which our way of thinking is to resemble more and more the way God wants us to think, to resemble the mind of Christ. We have to learn things and relearn things from a new perspective. We need new values. We need to train our minds so that we begin to think God's thoughts after him, and this takes place in a continuing process of working out this transformation daily in response to the mercies of God, creating in us a new moral perspective, a new mind. And why do we need a new mind, verse 2? So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need a new mind so that we can know the will of God. This is why true doctrine is so vital, why theology is so important. Theology is not speculating about the philosophical aspects of the character of God. It is studying who he is, what his character is, what he loves, what he hates, how is he saving, who is he saving. If you want to live a godly life, if you want to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, then it is indispensable to your spiritual growth that you dig into the scriptures deeply to understand what God is revealing, even the intense sections in 11 chapters of doctrine and theology. This is part of the sacrifice of the Christian life. There there is a sacrifice of your body and there's a sacrifice of your mind. And it's not a sacrifice in the mind in the sense that you vacate your intellect, but in the sense of giving your intellect as a present to God, to be instructed by him so that your thinking will honor him. Do you want to know what the will of God is? You will have to study the word of God. You have to think like God. You have to have a new mind. And if you want a new mind, you have to study the word of God more rigorously than you have ever studied anything in your life. There is no magical way to know the will of God apart from knowing the word of God. Notice here, it doesn't say, if you want to know the will of God, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you the will of God. What does it tell us? It tells us that we need to be transformed in our thinking by the Word of God. We need to be meditating on the Word of God so that our thinking is changed. There's not a simple shortcut to knowing the will of God. Knowing the will of God comes from knowing the Word of God intimately. This is not only in the sense of seeing what the Word says explicitly about the will of God such as generous giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, the avoidance of sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, or giving thanks to God in all circumstances. The Bible tells us each of these things is the will of God for us. It is the will of God for you to be a generous giver. It is the will of God to avoid sexual immorality. It is the will of God to give thanks to God in all circumstances. We know these because they're said explicitly. But... It is also that renewing of the mind by being exposed to and embracing the teachings of the Scriptures, the doctrine and theology, we will enable believers to test for themselves and approve what God expects of them. The Christian is not meant to simply rely on a list of ethical commands, but to be able to discern, to test and approve what God's will is. For, for general ethical conduct, but also for specific decisions and occasions. The Bible is sufficient for all of these things, even if it doesn't say in particular what you should do in this circumstance. The Bible doesn't give you a long enough list. The, the Old Testament has 613-odd laws in it, and it's not enough. There's not enough laws because what about this situation? What about that situation? What if, what if I have two brothers in that situation, not just one? Like there, there's, there, you could expand on this endlessly, and this is what God's Spirit is doing in us through the renewing of our mind in God's Word. God, or Paul, God, through Paul, I should say, has made clear earlier in the letter that Christians are no longer to look to the Old Testament law as a complete and authoritative guide for conduct. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances is replaced instead with the renewed mind of the believer, steeped in the ethics of the Scriptures, and, and made well aware of that which God approves and disapproves of. All, all of the Old Testament law is, is so necessary for formulating this. The Old Testament law is, is so necessary that we would have this new mind, and yet it is not to be our complete and authoritative guide for conduct. It is actually the new mind of Christ given to us as our, we are transformed in the renewing of our mind. Every genuine believer will be eager to know God's will because our greatest desire more and more will be to receive his commendation and to bring glory to his name. Let me say this again. Every genuine believer, if you are a genuine believer here, it will be more and more your greatest desire to bring glory to God and for when Jesus to return to receive the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. servant. If, if this is meaningless to you, you need to do some soul-searching, because every believer is motivated for this. This is our greatest ambition: the glory of God, and to receive his commendation. And this passage this morning that we've just looked at is one of the few places in the Bible that gives us a fairly straightforward formula for doing just that. But this is not a a three-step program that can be completed in a day, in a week, or in a month, but it, it requires a pattern of life in which we discipline ourselves to fill our minds with the things of God, study His Word, and guard our minds from being influenced by the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your miraculous word. Supernatural. Beyond anything that we could conceive of. It is, is powerful. And, and it cuts to the heart of things. It, it divides between what is flesh and what is spirit. It it tells us where we are at in relation to your righteous decree. And more than anything, God, it brings us back once again to rely wholly on your mercies. Lord, where we have failed, we, we come to you to receive your mercies this morning. Where we think we have succeeded, we come to you to receive your mercies this morning. Help us to become wholly reliant on you. And Lord, as we come to despair of human efforts and ability and rely wholly on you for your work of sanctification. And salvation, I pray that we would now be motivated by your mercies. The commandment of your mercies upon our lives would take place. That knowing the doctrine and theology of salvation by grace alone, that it would motivate us now to offer ourselves wholly to you, as acceptable offering. Lord in fear of you we must be very careful when we come before you to offer our service and our worship. What a scary situation to be those who are offering a song or a gift but have not offered what is acceptable and pleasing What a scary situation to be those who offer our lives in part, but not in the whole. And so, Lord, I ask that your mercy would serve its purpose in us, that knowing your great mercy for we who are sinners, that our lives would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the washing of our minds with your word, and by resisting being assimilated by this world so that we could offer our worship in spirit and in truth, that we could offer what is acceptable to you, what is pleasing to our God, and walk in relationship with you. Do this in us and motivate us by your spirit to allow this to take place in our life. In Jesus' name I ask for his glory, and for our good, amen.